Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. In this episode, we're going to hear three perspectives on generative AI and the extent to which the makers of these systems may be exposed to potential liability. I spoke to three experts, each with their own views on questions such as whether Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which has provided broad immunity to internet platforms that host third-party content, will apply to systems like ChatGPT. My guests, in order of appearance, are Jess Myers, Legal Advocacy Counsel at the Chamber of Progress, an industry coalition whose partners include Meta, Apple, Google, Amazon, and others, James Grimmelman, a law professor at Cornell with appointments at Cornell Tech and Cornell Law School, and Hani Farid, a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, with a joint appointment in the Computer and Information Science Departments. As you listen to each guest grapple with how courts and lawmakers may interpret these emerging technologies, pay attention for the points at which they agree and the points at which they disagree including on how to interpret the degree to which the outputs of large language models are the same or different from technologies such as search and recommendations, the degree to which it is advantageous for the companies producing the systems to be exposed to potential liability, how to think about intellectual property questions around training data and the outputs of these systems, and the balance between the potential promise and the potential peril of AI more generally. Each interview runs about 25 minutes, and first up is Jess Myers. Jess Myers. I am Legal Advocacy Counsel at Chamber of Progress, which is a center-left industry coalition promoting technology's progressive future. Can you tell us just a little bit about the Chamber of Progress, how it was constituted, where it came from, how it operates? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Chamber of Progress started, I believe, in 2020, so relatively new tech trade association with the idea that the Chamber, you know, we work to ensure that Everyone has benefits from technological leaps and that the tech industry is operating responsibly and fairly. And we're incredibly principled in our approaches to that mission as well. So, for example, we're First Amendment absolutists, we're Section 230 absolutists, because we believe that laws like the First Amendment and, or, and um, Section 230 protect consumers online, for example. So, you know, we have uh, several tech partners, tech company partners. Um, we don't represent them. They do not have a vote on our, our positions. We're very, like I said, mission principle driven. And what's your background? Where were you at prior to Chamber of Progress? Yeah, so I was formerly um, with Google. I, while I was still in law school, I was on their trust and safety team. I was working on um, product policy related work and legal removals work. Um, and then I transferred over to Google's uh, government affairs and public policy team where I was working primarily on US intermediary liability law. So again, Section 230, content regulation topics in the state and then at the federal level. And I'm also and an attorney. And I must point out for my listeners uh, that you are wearing a Section 230 necklace uh, while we're conducting this interview, which is perhaps the first Section 230 bling that I've seen. That's awesome. I mean, you do know I have a Section 230 tattoo, too, right? Wow. <laughs> I, can, I can show it. It's, yeah, it's on my wrist. It's on the left wrist. Well, and it's uh, kind of how I got started. I will confirm for the listener that there is, in fact, a Section 230 uh, tattoo. Um, so we'll get into the conversation a bit. Um, and I was prompted to get in touch with you after seeing some comments included in a Washington Post piece by Will Ramos and Cristiano Lima, 
AI chatbots may have a liability problem. And so this article sort of set out, you know, some questions that have been raised by experts uh, and some questions that intersect also with the Supreme Court oral argument in Gonzalez versus Google, which could potentially have bearing on the degree to which AI systems and, of course, large, large language models could potentially be kind of covered by or excluded from uh, or otherwise handled with regard to Section 230 cases. So I want to talk a little bit about that, talk a little bit about some of the cases in which you think the outputs of large language models would receive Section 230 protection uh, and perhaps some of the cases where it might not. So I'll put that question to you just to start. Just to kick the conversation off, I have to say, one of my driving principles as an internet lawyer is, you know, just because the technology is new and it always will be new, will always be evolving and innovating technology, um, doesn't mean that the established legal principles underpinning the modern web need to necessarily change. And I say that just because in several of these conversations that I've I've had, I feel like sometimes we, we rushed into the discussion of, well, how are we going to regulate and how do our laws change before we take a step back and actually think about, do we need to change? Do we need to take an exceptionalist view to this technology as it stands right now? So there's a lot of discussion about whether Section 230 applies to, let's start with generative AI products like ChatGPT, for example. And that's mostly what I've, I've been uh, discussing with technologists and, and other lawyers as well. Starting with Section 230. The other side, the opposition, the, the folks who say that Section 230 doesn't protect generative AI products argue that, you know, for starters, Section 230, it was developed or, or enacted pre-algorithm era, for example. Congress never knew about or intended Section 230 to protect this sort of um, AI technology. AI technology like this didn't exist at that time. So um, Section 230 isn't isn't written to, to apply to these products. And I push back on that and saying that Section 230 was initially established with the recognition that online the online world would undergo uh, frequent advancements and that the law would have to accommodate, accommodate these changes to promote a thriving digital ecosystem. So, you know, my argument is actually this is exactly what Congress intended. It anticipated that the internet was going to keep evolving. And now here we are, generative AI is presenting an interesting question. So, you know, you're asking what are the cases in which Section 230 would and would not protect? And I think it's actually a really complicated question because there's the legal, we could take this from the textualist legal analysis approach to these products, but then we can't do that without thinking about how the courts right now are sort of undermining current Section 230 case law, how politics, the current political uh, wars against online speech and Section 230, how, how those are positioned to undermine 230 as well, and also what Congress and the states are doing too. So I think starting with generative AI like ChatGPT, I know the technologists hate this argument. I am a technologist myself. I understand that there are complexities to, this, to these programs, but for legal purposes, it is my opinion that ChatGPT and other generative AI products right now work a lot like or operate a lot like Google search. So a user provides an input or a query, asking it to give it an output in the same way that a user presents a query to Google search and Google search presents a list of results. Now, in those results for Google search, you're going to see something, you know, we call them snippets. So you'll see the URL the, that you can actually click on to go to the site and right below you're going to see a snippet. Those snippets are generated by Google and they summarize what is on what is going to be at that page. And we have seen lawsuits, early lawsuits brought against Google for the actual snippets, stating that Google developed the snippet in part, for example. This is typically the argument used against why 230 shouldn't protect um, ChatGPT. But because Google developed the snippet in part, 
Google doesn't get to use Section 230. And those cases have consistently turned over, turned around to say that actually Google does get Section 230 because Google is one responding to third-party inputs when when you actually make the search. But the second important part is that Google is summarizing third-party content. Google is still not the creator in whole or in part of the actual content that it's summarizing, the actual content at issue. And so, analogizing that to ChatGPT, for example, the same legal principles should apply here. The only way you can get ChatGPT to respond with an output is if you, a third-party user, give it an input. And more so, taking that a step further, if we want to argue about the content that's actually output from ChatGPT, you could make the argument that ChatGPT is actually just curating or summarizing existing public information or existing third-party content. So I think Legally speaking, if we're just looking at the statute of the text and we're looking at prior case law as it is applied to some other analogous products, Section 230 should apply to generative AI products at, at this current iteration, uh, at their current technical iterations. I think getting into where Section 230 wouldn't apply, it's going to depend on a few things. Let's say the technology advances so much that the AI is making its own decisions. It's it's not drawing from third-party inputs. And I, I say that even hesitantly because how is the AI trained? The, the, the data had to come from somewhere. So I could make an argument, but I think those arguments get more tenuous the more I, I'd say potentially advanced AI becomes. Um, I haven't seen an example or case like this yet, at least in the generative AI space. So I, I would tend to, to still stick to my point that I think Section 230 still protects those products. There's a lot of places we can go with this. So I'll go ahead and pause in case there's more questions. Let's talk about some of the types of transformations that could potentially happen, because uh, I think that does seem to be you know, where the question really is. If, for instance, I could imagine uh, a future state where a large language model or maybe some other technology is being applied, and it does appear that a search engine or a video platform uh, or what have you is making significant uh, alterations to the way that the material is presented, possibly based on some kind of optimization, right? They're trying to make the material more engaging or make the material more satisfy uh, what the engine predicts the user was looking for based on information they may have about that user uh, or their prior searches or what have you. Where is the line for you between the kind of manipulation of that content or the transformation of that content and becoming an information provider? Yeah, that's a really important question. And it actually, it goes back to my initial point at the, at the beginning of this podcast, which is, again, just because the technology is new doesn't necessarily mean we need to change the underlying legal principles. This is actually a perfect example where if we look at the Gonzalez case, for example, the case that's up in the Supreme Court, that case entirely has to do with YouTube learning from other, uh, learning from its users and curating or displaying content, recommending content in a way that will promote user, you know, specific user engagement. And that's sort of what the court is wrestling with right now with regards to whether Section 230 should protect, should go that far, if it should protect those recommendations. Now, I've always said, you know, I, I don't think it, this case had no business being in the Supreme Court because actually there is no circuit split. Of course, below the Supreme Court um, have consistently held in other cases that, of course, Section 230 applies to the curation of content. And that's really what's happening here. Again, we talk about um, whether it's ChatGPT, whether it's YouTube and its recommendation systems, or even when we're talking about like an offline newspaper company and they are deciding what goes on the front page to, to, to again, drive uh, reader engagement or, or reader interest. 
all of those boil down to curatorial functions. And those functions are regular functions that publishers consistently use to you know, express themselves and to bring attention to the speech that they are catering to. So I think in that regard, in my opinion, Section 230 should continue to apply as long as, and there are, and these are some, you know, developing or already developed exceptions in Section 230, as long as the service, the intermediary, doesn't, for example, change the underlying meaning of the content. That's always been a, a principle in Section 230 case law. You you can edit, an online company can edit your speech as long as they don't change the underlying meaning to it. Or if we're talking about something, if we're talking about something that's that's you know illegal, for example, and the uh, it's uncovered that the online service at issue has materially contributed to the unlawful expression, or has you know somehow converted whatever the third-party content curated content is into their own first-party content because they materially contributed to it, then that would be a situation where Section 230 may not apply, and that stems from the the famous roommates case, as as you know your listeners may or may not be aware of. So let's just get a little nitty gritty, uh, just some specific examples, perhaps help the listener kind of think through the hypothetical. You know, right now, for instance, uh, Google in its search results for videos will automatically rewrite video headlines, for instance. Some studies say about a third of the cases, a third of the headlines that you see in search engine results pages are automatically reformulated uh, in order to uh, perhaps better match the search query. There is a possibility, I suppose, that a large language model could perhaps produce a a meaning that is perhaps slightly different or could potentially make a particular piece of content more enticing uh, to a user based on the formulation that it comes back out with based on its predictive model. You know, can you imagine hypotheticals where that would potentially put the platform in a bind with regard to Section 230? Yeah, I've wondered a bit about, you know, in that situation, what would happen if YouTube came up with or generated a headline or a title that was defamatory, for example? YouTube would likely never do this, but, you know, let's say that, you know, you've got a a video that's like, Jess Myers hates 230, and this is a video about Jess Myers talking about why Section 230 should be repealed. I mean, that would be, you know, credibly defamatory for myself and my brand. Um, Is YouTube liable because the underlying content, the underlying video is created by, let's say, me and other third-party users. So if I tried to sue YouTube and I was basing it on the video itself, Section 230 would apply. If I'm suing YouTube based on the actual title, um, I think there would, I think, I think YouTube might actually have a viable argument to say that, or I would have a viable argument to say that YouTube potentially materially contributed to the unlawfulness of uh, the content at issue, the content being the title. And because the reason they, they are likely liable is because they've changed the underlying the underlying meaning of the content itself in creating that title. There's also questions too as, as to, you know, we jump into the lawsuit question quickly and we, and we don't think about like, who would the parties to this suit be? So is it YouTube's own algorithm um, or is it, are they like embedding OpenAI software and could OpenAI be liable for the mistake that occurred here um, as well? Or could o- OpenAI be protected by Section 230 because of the way that YouTube implemented the, the content? These are harder questions than we've seen before in the 230 space for sure. When it comes to other kinds of transformations, so we could imagine sort of various synthetic media types of approaches that might be incorporated by the platforms in the future. For instance, uh, transformations to audio, possibly even transformations to video. 
upscaling of of content to higher resolution or uh, fixing lighting, maybe optimizing you know the the sounds that uh, are, are coming through a particular video. What do you think about that? Is there a, a point at which the platform becomes a kind of co-creator or co-producer of material? I don't think so for section for section 230 based claims specifically. So again, thinking about things like false light for privacy tour or again defamation, negligence, I think for those types of claims that where 230 would would normally apply, I don't think that the uh the the company is at risk of becoming a co-creator. And again, this stems back to existing decades of precedence with section 230. A, a website an intermediary can actually do a lot with third-party content. They can solicit third-party content. They can remix existing third-party content and when they curate it, they can edit it as long as they don't change the underlying meaning. And so in a situation where if all of they're doing is heightening the audio quality or they're making, you know, the display better or they're even teeing it up in a way that is more interesting to a specific user, as long as they are not participating in or participating in changing that underlying content or they're not actually creating or developing that content, Section 230 will protect. Now, I will say, you know, obviously Section 230 is, isn't limitless. There are exceptions. An important one would be for intellectual property. Right now, there is a circuit split, for example, when it comes to right of publicity claims. Um, in states where right of publicity is treated like a privacy claim, and by the way, for those of you who are listening, right of publicity, we're talking about claims when, you know, somebody's name or audio or likeness is being used without your authorization. It's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's sort of the gist of it. Some states treat right of publicity like a privacy tort, and that should be protected by Section 230. Other states do treat right of publicity like a intellectual property tort, though. And in those states, if for some reason, the if somebody could bring a viable claim against an internet service that has altered the audio, for example, or made someone else's audio sound like me or deep fake technology, et cetera, we can be totally out of the purview of Section 230 if we go down the intellectual property route. In Gonzalez, the concern is around the degree to which the platform uh, perhaps provided uh, support to uh, a terrorist organization or whether they should be allowed to be even even that case to be heard, right? If we think about some of the transformations that could happen, I'll just give you a hypothetical. If uh, we find out, for instance, in the future that uh, a platform like YouTube is optimizing video or upscaling thumbnails or automatically producing snippets using large language models that um, are particularly targeted to an individual and in, in their search history or their demographic profile or what have you. And those types of transformations do appear to make that content more attractive to a user than perhaps it might otherwise have been. Would it be your position that for the most part, they still shouldn't have their day in court? Absolutely. I would say that Section 230 would apply. There are going to be, there's always going to be this question, right? So Section 230 regards it, it the test is, is a three-part test. You're always asking, you know, first off, is the defendant an interactive computer service, i.e. a website and, and or somebody who is using an interactive computer service? Um, the second test is going to look at, you know, are the plaintiff's claims, are they attempting to hold the defendant liable as a publisher of, third test, third-party content? And the third-party content piece is really important um, because, again, if we're talking about a, there, there is a huge difference between a website that is creating its own content and, you know, or materially contributing to unlawful content in that it is, it is like actually a co-creator, it is developed, it has built that content um, as well, versus 
a website that is hosting their underlying third-party content, remixing underlying third-party content, displaying in a way that is attractive to its users. All of those are not only protected activities under 230, but they're also protected public uh, publisher uh, discretion, editorial discretion under the First Amendment as well. Now, let's see what happens with the Gonzalez case, though. I mean, again, we've we've seen already decades of 230 case law and precedents that, has, that have consistently said that if you are just displaying third-party content, remixing it, making it interesting to your users, you're good to go. Recommendations, you're good to go under 230. I'm worried. I am a little concerned that what could come out of Gonzalez, though, um, is that is sort of a discussion or an arbitrary line that gets drawn that says Section 230 only applies to algorithms when those algorithms are implemented, quote unquote, neutrally. That could really throw a wrench in um, the discussion because now we would the courts would have to assess on a case by case basis whether every in- implementation of what you've described as, you know, like a recommendation or some sort of transformation, was it done neutrally, whatever that means, by the service itself? That's going to create a, a, I think, a sticky question that could go either way, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. I guess another question, um, bear with me as I kind of puzzle this out a little bit. When you think about what these models are doing, um, you've referred to, you know, remixing content um, on a number of occasions. Um, is that, you think, uh, an appropriate kind of metaphor for what large language models are doing or other uh, synthetic media approaches? You know, this is where the technologists have pushed back on me on Twitter as well. I think um I actually think it's a very reductive way of explaining these technologies. I think if you're a technologist and you're explaining how the technology works, I think, you know, it's probably a little bit more than just remixing third party content. It's also looking at, you know, how many people are using OpenAI and what is the algorithm learning from those people who are putting in inputs and um, sort of some other technical complexity uh, that goes into the outputs from a generative AI product. However, if we're talking about just the law and from the perspective of the law and what Section 230 says, I think for now, the way the technology currently works, I think it is analogous to, you know, again, a Google search, for example, or even, you know, the discussion that took place in the roommates case where we're getting that materially contributed to unlawful content test. Roommates provided a, you know, just a blank form for people to just input text. And I would argue that the same thing is happening here with ChatGPT. ChatGPT doesn't create an output for you on its own. If you figure out a way to ask ChatGPT how to tell you how to make a bomb, the question is going to be whether, you know, who who started that query? Who is the one who, who caused ChatGPT to create that output in the first place? And that is always going to be a third-party user. Until we go beyond a third-party user's interaction with the service, if for some reason one of these models is now doing things, you know, completely and entirely on its own, and it's, you know, creating it without um, input from a user, I think that'll probably be a difficult, uh, a harder question with regards to whether 230 protects. But then I would also have a lot of questions too as to, again, what's the claim? What's the underlying claim? And who are the parties? So we've already seen in many hypotheticals or or actually in many actual use cases where an interlocutor with a chat product has been able to kind of convince the system to go around its own guardrails, for instance, and to produce material which it claims, you know, it, it does not want to do. Are there cases where you can imagine, even based on the input from an individual, that the because this is really this I feel like this is very important to to your argument here, um, that when I enter something into that box at ChatGPT, that I am personally then shaping what's coming out of it, which I understand to some extent 
I think I'd probably side with the technologists on some level who would say it's not remixing, it's predicting, it's it's making up what it thinks you want to hear based on you know the string of words you've given it. So I, I don't know. That's where I struggle is is that it's not necessarily you know remixing from a bag of prior material that it's cutting and clipping, but rather it's it's predicting uh, based on that prior material, based on the patterns in the, that prior material what the response should be. Um, so in that way, I can sort of see how if I'm having a direct conversation with a search engine, say I'm talking to it over a smart home device or something, um, and it gives me something that is, uh, I don't know, illegal, or uh, gives me something that that leads me to do something that brings harm to myself or others, I could imagine that that would produce liability. I would say, so Again, there's the how the law would work and there's, you know, reality. Where are the courts actually going with this? And I actually think you're right. That is the crux of the issue here. Uh, Trying to figure out who at the end of the day is the information content provider. Now, uh, you know, under the actual statute, my argument would be that the person who kicks off the query is the information content provider, not the interactive computer service. And I think we can compare that similarly to let's take some of these other recommendation cases that we've seen in Section 230 that have come out strongly in favor of, of Section 30 protection. One of them has to do with, I believe it's the Dyroff case, has to do with when a website was um, automatically sending recommendations, I think via email, to specific users who had been putting in queries at the time in search of drugs. And I think in that case, I believe the user, I think, died from an overdose or whatever, um, because, you know, from taking the drugs that they had found on on the service. And the argument was sort of similar. Uh, The website in that case uh, was just predicting what the user was interested in. The user didn't input anything to ask for that automated automatic update. At the same time, the, you know, the website was protected because what it was doing was, again, the underlying content that it was notifying the user about was third-party content. The website itself did not post where to buy those drugs or the website itself was not hosting, you know, was not the source of the, the drugs, it was just information. And so I think if you compare it to, to that or even just take it a step back and think about, again, how Google search works or how even YouTube recommendations work, both of those, both Google search and um, YouTube they work by taking in your interests and then suggesting or choose your words, predicting what results are going to be most relevant to, to you as a user who, who has submitted a query. Arguably, that is what ChatGPT is doing as well. It is using inputs to figure out what would be to predict and provide an output based on what you have asked it. So I, I would say, you know, look, Practically speaking, when we're talking about you know folks actually litigating open AI and these these generative AI products, I think we're going to have a really hard discussion with the courts because we have to get the courts to understand the technology first, and then we have to have sort of a, a difficult discussion, in my opinion, about where to draw a line with Section 230. And if these Supreme Court cases go in and make things even more complicated with this neutral tools analysis, this could be even more complicated. So to your point, I absolutely could see courts sort of create an arbitrary line where ChatGPT products don't get the protection of Section 230 based on this prediction analysis. I think that would be the wrong way to go because, again, at the end of the day, the information content provider, the interlocutor, as, as you sort of mentioned before, they're the ones that kick the query off. They are the creator of the output. I think it will all, to some extent, hinge on that, uh, be a complicated question that I'm sure we'll see play out. I hope that the courts will perhaps uh, you know, look to some technical experts as they ask these questions, um, you know, as uh, 
Justice Elena Kagan, you know, brought up, there's a kind of competency issue here uh, that probably goes well beyond the Supreme Court. Absolutely agree with that. And I really hope that we start getting more technologists in the room on these discussions. You know, I know I joked that they were pushing back on me on Twitter, but this needs to be a fluid discussion. This can't just be a purely legal discussion or a purely engineering discussion. We're talking about, you know, what's at stake here is innovation of these technologies. If these technologies feel as if, you know, for example, Section 230 doesn't apply, uh, there's going to be less incentive for folks to create their own generative AI products because they don't want to be liable for what some user, some interlocutor causes their product to do or say. So yeah, there's a lot at stake. There's access to information issues. We were talking about online speech and the development of more of these products and innovation. I hope that we're continuing to have a multi-stakeholder approach to these discussions. And then on the other hand, of course, safety concerns. Uh, so exactly. weighing, weighing the innovation uh, with potential uh, safety concerns as well. Absolutely. Jess, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank you for having me. This is such an important conversation. I'm happy to be here. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. Next up in this series of discussions on generative AI is James Grimmelman. James Grimmelman, I'm a law professor at Cornell University, at Cornell Tech, and Cornell Law School. James, I appreciate you joining me this morning. We're going to talk a little bit about Section 230 and generative AI. There's a debate going on about the extent to which Section 230 may apply to the outputs of generative AI systems like ChatGPT and others, um, and in what cases uh, there might be liability and what circumstances. And so I want to kind of get your first thoughts. Uh, I know that you are doing some research on this in your group and thinking through this question. I think this is one of those questions that's not going to have a simple answer. I can imagine generative AI systems that produce outputs that they really don't seem like they should be responsible for. They work more like search engines and they're just pointing you to things other people have said. I can imagine generative AI systems that are highly culpable and have been engineered to do terrible things. It's not clear that Section 230 should treat those two the same. Talk a little bit about the way that you understand the technology and the extent to which the way that the technology works uh, and metaphors that we might use uh, from prior technology may impact the way that courts think about the role of uh, generative AI systems in this regard. Yeah. So very loosely, generative AI systems are trained on a lot of examples, usually scraped from the internet or in other very large data sets, and they learn in the structure of their networks, the statistical regularities in whatever they've been trained on. So language models learn which words tend to occur together and in what order, and which words are substitutes for each other with different inflections. Image models learn what kinds of patterns of image data show up together. And so they can pick up both the structure of what a house looks like or the distinctive painting style of impressionism. And then users feed them a prompt a few words or a source image to start from. And then these systems complete that prompt with patterns they find most likely to fit with it in context. 
So if you start a conversation with a language model, it will continue in the same tone as a respondent having a conversation with you. Or if you use an image model, you can prompt it with some words and it will try to create an image that fits with those words in its labeled database. So how does this affect or how does this understanding of the technology affect whether we may consider tools like ChatGPT as an information content provider versus an intermediary? So I can tell you different stories about what the generative AI is doing. One story makes it sound a lot like a search engine. And when people use ChatGPT for doing research or to summarize information on something, it functions a lot like that. If you ask ChatGPT to explain photosynthesis to you, it will be drawing on lots of people's explanations of photosynthesis from around the web. And the words that it gives back will basically reflect the descriptions that thousands of people have given in its input data. It may look like some of them in particular may be more of a squirt out average, but ChatGPT has no real views on photosynthesis. It truly is mirroring what's in the training data. In that version of the telling, uh, do you regard a system like ChatGPT or other large language model outputs to be essentially remixing the content or is it developing the content? In that version of the story, it's really just a kind of remix. It's a very complicated remix where it is boring together lots of different sources into a combined composite. But that's sort of like taking thousands of people's photographs and blurring them together into a single generic composite face. The output really is just coming from the inputs in a way that brings them together and draws on them all. So what's the second telling of the story? So a second version of the story would be that it's not just finding things that are in the data. That first version makes it sound like a remix or a search engine. A second version is the well-known tendency of AI models to hallucinate, that they will make up things that are syntactically plausible, but didn't come from their training data. It's not just that they're returning back to things they've been taught on. They will complete a dialogue or a picture with things that are likely, even if the particular details are highly implausible or didn't happen. So if you go to ChatGPT and you ask it for information about scandals that if a person's name has been involved in, it's quite possible that it will invent some scandals because it, that's the kind of response you would get into that kind of exchange. It doesn't happen that that particular person has been involved in these things. It's just that the model is writing out, or some people would say hallucinating, a plausible looking answer to that question, even though there's no semantic content. And that's a case in which the information content provider argument is a little harder to make. It is producing a remix of the words that people have used on the web, but it has synthesized them into an allegation against a person that is not present anywhere. The claim that James Grimmelman beats puppies, that didn't come from any source that said, I beat puppies. That was actually synthesized by the model. And so in the language of some of the 230 cases, it has contributed materially to the illegality of the content. Are you imagining different types of ways that these systems could be used? For instance, uh, you know, Microsoft uh, baking it into Bing. Uh, we might see Google using uh, language models in its search products in the future. How do you think this will play out? What other types of 
I guess, scenarios that you'll be looking for? I think the diversity of context this will be used in is part of what makes it so tricky. You are going to have search assistants built into Bing and to Google. You are going to have office assistants built into Microsoft Office and Google Docs that will complete text for you and do research. You are going to have standalone apps that aren't coming from these major companies, but are built on models that have been incorporated into other programs. You can already get apps like that on your iPhone that run locally on the phone. There are going to be customized models based upon these ones where someone has taken GPT and highly customized it to work for engineering applications or for technical programming-related applications. And each of these settings is going to raise distinct questions. The exact combination of who put together this training data, how was the model spent, customized, what kind of filtering did they do afterwards, who actually ran it. These kinds of factual intricacies are going to make the legal analysis more complicated. So we know that the Supreme Court is kind of considering this question that, you know, we heard Justice Neil Gorsuch talk a little bit about the idea that AI may in fact generate content, asking the question about the extent to which that might be incorporated into the recommendations of a search engine or another internet platform. What do you think the Supreme Court decision in Gonzalez v. Google may end up portending for this question? It's quite possible that a clear victory for one side or the other will have sweeping implications here. So if the court rules for Gonzalez on a very broad theory that almost any recommendation or ranking or ordering is uncovered by 230, then that theory would almost certainly leave a lot of room for generative AIs to be liable. If the court adopts Google's position in which none of this is outside of 230, then that could wind up being a pretty broad shield for AIs, that they're just an extension of the algorithms that search engines are already broadly using. If the court comes down somewhere in the middle, or if it says very clearly, we're not judging how this will apply to AIs, I think I'll still leave the terrain open for future cases. If Justice James Grimmelman were writing the decision uh, and assuming he had the majority, what would you hope would happen? I think at this point, the 230 case law is just too well developed to tinker with it now. I would say something like the courts that have considered this in the district courts and courts of appeals have settled on a very broad interpretation of 230. It has its critics, but it's also been functioning. We leave changes to Congress. And what would you recommend to Congress? So for Congress, I would try to carve out some specific areas from 230 that aren't really at stake in this case. I would want a clearer line between speech and conduct. So to have a clearer rule that marketplaces, so Ebay's and Airbnb's and Ubers, that they can't just put their entire business operations inside of Section 230. And I would want some kind of clearer rule about obligations to review content upon some kind of notice or knowledge that this specific item is problematic in some way at least where the platform is already giving that kind of human review to the content. So not the truly automated ones, but in cases where it's artisanal and closely moderated. So you have these gossip sites that are already hand selecting which posts to put on the site. And it's not obvious to me that they really need the shield of 230 
in the same way that a really large site like a Reddit does. I think a lot of the fears of folks who are concerned about language models and the way that they may roll out in broader contexts on the internet do regard things like uh, discrimination, uh, things like bias in uh, you know the underlying uh, training data that may be reflected in the outputs, uh, but then also potentially just the insertion or injection of misinformation, even difficult to identify misinformation into information systems that may then have you know second order effects. Do you think that the types of exceptions you're describing there would cover off those types of concerns? I think a lot of the concerns we're having around large language models right now are actually less about the models themselves and more about the way that they are being thrown into all kinds of applications with very little thought about the suitability to them. There are people who think that these models have some kind of special access to truth and that if we just ask them the right questions, we will be able to predict the future or access knowledge that's being kept from us. And so that this are some ways more reliable search. And in fact, that's a pretty dangerous epistemic approach to what they do. You also have people just throwing them into processes and putting data out from them, using them as to write papers or to write blog posts with very little concern for reviewing the quality or accuracy of it. So I think the bigger problems for our information ecosystem are just the increased flood of very poorly vetted content. I'm more concerned about how we use it than about how we train it. We could have really good vetting and really good controls on the quality of training data. And if people are still using this to spew out these fire hoses of content, we're still going to have a lot of the same terrible effects. What would be an effective governance regime for large language models or AI more generally that would perhaps mitigate some of those concerns? So, I mean, I may not be super popular for saying this, but I don't think governance is going to be a great framework for dealing with these very rapid short-term shifts. I think it's at this point really hard to create a framework that manages that well. I think common law case-by-case development has something to be said for it because it can respond to, like I've said, the huge factual diversity in the way these different models work and how they're used. Was I really want to just be more responsive, faster moving courts, get a lot of cases into the system and start dealing with them. We'll get some of them wrong, but that's the way to have a process that actually earns. But of course, that would you know, require that some of these cases can actually come to the court uh, as opposed to just being kicked out under Section 230. Yeah, I appreciate the tension there that Section 230 has created a regime where people rely heavily on it. And so the kind of case-by-case learning we want has actually happened in some ways in an immense wave of lawsuits that are dismissed on Section 230 without reaching the merits, which is, of course, the stability that provides is in tension with our ability to learn from examining these cases. A lot of the folks who have an interest in or seem to have an interest in perhaps offering a kind of temporary amnesty or Uh, a period in which we can kind of evaluate the potential, both harms and opportunities of these technologies, you know, suggest that, you know, really that's the reason we should, we should avoid creating a scenario in which they're liable uh, for their outputs in the near term, that we need to see where the tech goes, what it can do, uh, what it can do for society. Um, What do you think of those arguments? 
I don't think we're in any danger of preventing AI from happening if we have some of those concerns happening. I think that there is so much pressure and so much interest economically in making this happen that it's not as though we can turn the switch off at this point and prevent AI from happening over a five or 10 year time frame. I think it would actually be kind of nice to move slower. And if the companies had more fear of liability, they would not be rushing so aggressively to deploy these models with you know, quite little vetting. So in some ways, I think the environment where they feel more chilled would actually lead to a healthier balance overall. I've heard some folks say that maybe at the higher end, you know, the the 10 or 12 or so companies that are really, you know, investing the most into the development of these models, investing the most into the development of AI more generally, that perhaps there should be special controls on them, compute governance, for instance, uh, some kind of registration for training massive models that may have unexpected capabilities or, uh, you know, may pose particular types of risks. Have you given that any thought? Not a lot. The thing that I worry about is that it really does seem like they're pouring immense amount into having the best models and they have the money to throw at it. But models that are a generation or two back are shockingly good and increasingly shockingly inexpensive to train. We are not talking cases where you have to be putting in nine figures to be in the game at all. It really does seem as though you can get competent, surprisingly good models for hundreds of thousands to a few million dollars worth of compute. So we're paying attention to the current frontier with the open AIs and the Googles, but people have gotten you know, surprisingly good models that are open sourced. And so we're going to see widespread availability of these capabilities very soon. What do you make of the approaches to trust and safety so far of those major players, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, OpenAI? Um, OpenAI has just put out you know, its technical paper, uh, quote unquote paper uh, around GPT-4, described uh, various steps that it's taken, including a red teaming process, uh, you know, alignment process, the like. Um, what do you make of what we're seeing from these companies with regard to their responsibility? Now, on the one hand, it's quite clear that things would be immensely worse if they weren't doing this. That OpenAI has taken a, a pretty serious approach to thinking about different use cases and has put in place training and reinforcement learning to prevent some of the bad ones. It's also clear that it's woefully inadequate that they are learning from their exposure to actual users trying different things, just how many ways their safety guardrails break. We saw this with the rollout of being Sydney, in which people were really able to break out of the limited bounds that Microsoft thought it could be used in. And they shut that one off only by limiting the number of queries you could give to Sydney in any one conversation. So, and I'm glad, glad that they're doing it, but so far they're not inspiring great confidence in their being up to the task in the long run. What is your degree of concern around the rollout of these technologies more generally? If you kind of could think back from, say, the end of the decade, you know, 2030, where do you think we're likely to be? I mean, there are some folks, of course, predicting AI apocalypse, others predicting, you know, the age of abundance. Where do you think we're likely to end up? I don't know, because I think these technologies massively increase technical and social instability, that we don't really understand 
how they work and how they'll be used, especially at the scale of the billions of people already doing things on the internet. And so I just think they significantly increase the unpredictability of the way that society will work. And that's in some ways what concerns me more than anything else. So another set of concerns, of course, are around intellectual property and copyright. Um, we've just seen the patent office come out and basically say in the United States, basically say that any output of one of these systems will not deserve copyright. What do you make of what's happening in that space and the current lawsuits that are happening? IP isn't necessarily the best way to have all these conversations about how generative AI should and shouldn't be used, but they're the lawsuits we've got and they do raise real questions. In the past, we've taken the attitude that training machine learning models is almost always a fair use. And that calculus might look different now that we have really good generative AIs that are producing outputs that genuinely compete with the work of the artists they were trained on. So that's a serious question worth asking. And the let's just gather data from everywhere without much concern about its provenance, quality, legality, even consent, that's an attitude that I'm not sure has gotten us to great places. So maybe IP lawsuits are a way of putting the brakes on or firing some warning shots about the way in which we go about developing these models. It also is a way that gets us to ask, where does the output come from? What do we mean when we say this was generated from this training data? That turns out perhaps to be a useful perspective in thinking about the issues in these other kinds of lawsuits. So I don't have a strong view on how these lawsuits should come out, but I'm actually kind of glad that we're having them. They drive conversation in a way that other issues don't. The tension seems to be between the view, perhaps from Silicon Valley, that the internet is a corpora of material that represents you know, all of humanity's investment in learning, in art, in creativity, in communication, and that we can take that as a general training set and from it uh, produce anything we might like. Whereas there are others, people who produce culture, people who produce ideas, who look at that and say, either that is expropriation, you're, you're taking our culture, you're essentially flattening it uh, and allowing it to be reproduced uh, with no remuneration, with no consequence to, to its use. Um, is there any way to kind of square those things? Can you imagine some kind of copyright regime in the future that pays people for perhaps similarities between the outputs of an AI uh, and, and, and whatever went into training it? One way I think about this is that we might not like the world of culture that these AIs are bringing us into, but copyright may be a bad tool for stopping us from going there or changing it. That the kind of assumptions about how people create and use culture baked into the copyright system may really be hitting their breaking point. We thought that with the internet and file sharing, it may actually really happen with AI. And it might be that we want both to have some governance system about how AI is used and how it relates to culture and how we flag things that are synthetically created versus ones that came from people. And it may be that we need to have some very serious conversations about how to support artists and writers and creators and to make sure that creativity is something that still people in society broadly share and that those two things just have become completely decoupled and that copyright 
as the regime that unifies them is no longer the right tool for the job. Well, what a time to be alive. As someone uh, who studies these things, uh, do you feel like you're closer to to clarity on some of these issues uh, or does it seem daunting? It's incredibly daunting. I feel like I am trying to wade upstream in a river that is flooding like the rivers in California with the rainfall and snow coming down with them. Like every step I take forward is against a raging torrent. One of the things I'm struck by in looking at some of the outputs, especially from OpenAI, papers that it's done in collaboration with academics on everything from disinformation to the potential impact on labor and the economy of these systems, is that there seems to be a, a sort of gap between what independent academics and civil society are able to do and understand about the direction of these technologies and what the companies themselves are able to do in terms of the way they are able to resource and even kind of consider the potential implications of the things they're they're developing. Do you see that gap? Is there a real gap there? Is that something we need to be concerned about? I think there is a mismatch that things are moving so quickly in this space that on the one hand, people working at these companies do not feel that they have the time or ability to ask these broader questions. And they have frameworks they've developed to try to think about them. And those frameworks under a lot of strain and they're not keeping up with reality, but there's such a race on right now that they really can't step out of the stream. And those of us looking on are doing our best to think it's tough when things are coming at us so quickly, but we're always also just a few steps behind because we can react to whatever is happening now while you know, the next generation of model is already in training in secret somewhere. James, I hope you'll come back and talk about these things as, as those developments unfurl. It's been a pleasure. Here's something you agree with or something you disagree with. Get in touch with me on Twitter by tagging at Tech Policy Press and my account at Justin Hendricks or email me at justin at techpolicy.press. Our third and final guest this episode is Hani Farid. My name is Hani Farid. I am a professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Hani, can you just give the listener a little bit of sense of your expertise and why you are particularly interested in both generative AI uh, as well as Section 230? I am a computer scientist uh, by training. I'm on the faculty here in computer science. I also have a joint appointment in information science. I think about not just developing technology, but how technology interacts with us as individuals, with societies and with democracies. And I have been concerned over the last now 20 years with how technology is being weaponized in the form of child sexual abuse, in the form of terrorism and extremism, in the form of fraud, in the form of non-consensual sexual imagery, in the form of promoting and celebrating hate and vitriol and general awfulness that is the internet today. And I am not anti-technology. I'm very much pro-technology, but this is not the internet that I signed up for 25 years ago. And I think we can do better. You recently testified in a, a Senate hearing, Senate Judiciary a Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology and the Law, in a hearing titled Platform Accountability, Gonzalez and Reform. So uh, senators there wanted to talk through uh, the arguments in uh, Gonzalez uh, v. Google and to uh, hear from Section 230 critics and 
indeed the counsel who led the argument in the Supreme Court for uh, or in favor of Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you hope to convince the senators of that day in your testimony? Yeah. yeah. What I think has been frustrating for me and for many people is that a lot of discussions about fixing some of the problems that are most people agree we are seeing online is that it has become very partisan. And it has become partisan in part because 230 has become partisan. And that has become partisan because Republicans, conservative voices are fixated on the narrative that content moderation is anti-conservative. And it is not true. The evidence is overwhelming, in fact, that conservatives dominate social media. On the other side of the aisle, the Democrats are concerned with how technology is being used to disrupt democracies, uh, impede our efforts to combat global change, global climate change and things like uh, COVID. And so we sort of all agree that something's not working, but we disagree on the nature of the problem. And so my interest was to try to break through that partisanship. And one way that I've been thinking about this is to forget about 230. I, I think there's problems with 230, but forget it. And in some ways, my thinking on this has evolved. And I've come to this realization that the problem, in fact, is not the content The problem isn't that there are awful people doing awful things on the internet. The problem is that the platforms themselves are designing their products to encourage, amplify, and monetize the worst content on the internet because that seems to be what's driving our engagement. And in that regard, you don't get protection from a, a statute that says you are protected against what somebody else does. If you design a product that is unsafe, that is leading to harm, well, you own that the same way you own that in the physical world. So let me give you a concrete example of that with the Gonzalez case, which was, of course, centered around YouTube. YouTube claims Section 230 protection because ISIS uploaded videos, and that's not our problem. We have protection from third-party content. But if you go over to YouTube and you watch a video, what happens afterwards? Well, you get recommended another video. In fact, even if you don't watch a video, if you just Go right now to YouTube. You will be recommended things to watch. That's a feature. That's a design. They didn't have to do that, by the way. Well, think about core functionality of YouTube. Upload a video, watch a video, maybe search for a video. They chose to design a feature that promotes, recommends videos after you watch one. Why? To maximize user engagement, maximize ad revenue. And the algorithms, the way they do that, amplifies some of the worst most vitriolic conspiratorial content, because that's what engages users. This is not a third party Section 230 issue. This is a product liability issue. You've designed a faulty product. Let me give you one more example. In Lemon v. Snap, uh, there was a case where kids were using what was called a speed filter on Snapchat, which would record your speed superimposed atop your video. And kids were getting rewarded for higher speeds and kids did what kids do. They got in their car and they drove 125 miles an hour and wrapped themselves around telephone poles and killed themselves. And the family sued Snapchat saying, you are responsible for this. And the lower court said, nope, they have 230 protection. But the Ninth Circuit Court said, wait a minute, this is not a content issue. Snap designed a speed filter and they knew or they should have known that this was going to encourage bad behavior. And in fact, they sent it back down to the lower court. And importantly, And this is incredibly important here. The Ninth Circuit did not find Snap liable. They just said you don't get the 230 shield. And that's what I'm saying too. You don't get 230 shield for designing a faulty products. People who are harmed by your product should have their day in court. 
and let the jury decide about liability. And it will be messy for a while, but we'll figure it out the way we figure out all other product liability in the physical world. So you've given some thought to the role that recommendation algorithms, other transformations, algorithmic transformations, perhaps that these platforms are doing. I know that Google, for instance, is you know, automatically rewriting uh, headlines for videos and uh, search, engine, search engine result pages. Um, it's possible in future that a variety of uh, synthetic media approaches uh, could potentially okay. you know, serve to do a variety of uh, uh, upscaling of content or um, other types of transformations that we can imagine. Is your mind going in that direction as you think about how to yeah. make this distinction? Yeah, um, it's hard to look around right now and not see the power and the influence that generative AI will have, whether that's ChatGPT, whether that's uh, image synthesis, video synthesis, or voice synthesis. So let's play out a few scenarios here. So ChatGPT or versions of these interactive generative programs are now being released. There's a version on Snap, there's a version on Microsoft, Google just released a version today. Imagine you go over to, let's say, Microsoft's version of ChatGPT, and you start engaging with it in a conversation, and it convinces you that you should go out and commit a crime. Does Microsoft get 230 protection from that? Well, it's hard to imagine how they could, because there's no third-party content. It's your AI system. Yes, the AI system is built on third-party content, right? You scrape the internet, and you built that using large language models and all this internet content. But your, it's your program. And I think you own that. And so I don't think the way 230 is written now, and certainly not how it was conceived in, 19, in the mid nineties, that you get 230 protection from that. So I think these companies are going to have to think very carefully how they start using generative AI to whole cloth create content, which doesn't get 230 protection. But also, um, what if they just start modifying content to make it more engaging? Now it's starting to sound a lot like the Henderson case. And in the Henderson case, which you heard about in that Senate Judiciary hearing, uh, a company that was taking data, massaging it, drawing inferences from it, and then releasing it out, which had lots of errors, which in impacted people's lives, the court found did not get 230 protection. So I think companies have to tread very lightly here with how they start to deploy 230, uh, sorry, uh, generative AI, because it suddenly is not going to look like they're a distributor. It's going to start looking like they are a publisher and a creator, and they don't get 230 for this. What would you make of the argument, for instance, that services like ChatGPT or Stable Diffusion or other things like that are simply remixing the training data, that they're coming up with something that is, is born of, of the parts that they've collected? Yeah, here's what I love about that argument. Um, they will argue that is exactly not the case when they go to court and argue about copyright infringement. So if they argue, oh, we are simply mixing up a bunch of third-party content and therefore this is third-party content, they've got a copyright problem. They have a copyright infringement problem. You can't have it both ways, right? You can't steal people's content and then claim, well, we're doing something completely original. This is fair use. And then when it comes to harm saying, ah, we're just mixing up a bunch of stuff that other people have done, we're not responsible for it. Pick which one you want. One way or another, you're going to be on the hook. And by the way, it is true that generative AI can reproduce things from the training data. But generally speaking, that is not the case. Generally speaking, it is creating novel images, video, audio, and text. And so I, I think that is that argument doesn't fly with respect to how the technology works. And I guarantee you the tech companies are going to, to try to have it a different way when uh, the, the lawsuits for copyright infringement happen. 
When you think about the potential applications of things like large language models, other forms of quote unquote generative AI, be interested, by the way, what you think of that phrase. It seems mm-hmm. to be relatively new. Uh, yes. I've been in this you know, world for a little bit, uh, as you've been for many more years, uh, working on media forensics and uh, questions around this. Um, and the phrase itself seems relatively new to me. Good. We should talk about that, by the way. I have thoughts. You know, what What else are you sort of seeing down the pipe when it comes yeah. to this question around liability for the outputs of these systems? Yeah. First, let's talk about that phrase, generative AI. Um, it, and it is fairly recent. I think with chat GPT, it sort of was where it came from. There's So there's some things I like about it. Um, I think it's fairly descriptive. Um, if you if you acknowledge that none of this is AI and it's all machine learning, but let's use that term AI broadly. But here's why I think it came about. I think the industry generated because what did we used to call it? Deep fakes. And deep fakes are scary and bad because people are doing awful things with uh, videos and audio and images. And I think this is a softer version of deep fakes, which is which is very scary. And I think that's where the term came from. Um, now, where do I see the liability issues? Well, in a couple of places. So first of all, it is absolutely the case that there is an inflection point uh, in the last few months. We have started to see these large language, large language models do things we haven't seen before. We started to see image synthesis like Midjourney's version five create images that are unbelievably realistic. Um, Eleven Labs has basically nailed voice cloning with sixty seconds of somebody's voice. You can somebody's voice. You can now clone their voice very, very easily and just type and it will generate their voice. Of course, deepfake videos continue its trajectory. And we are seeing the same harms as we've seen in the past, but accelerated, non-consensual sexual imagery, fraud, large scale and small scale. People are now getting phone calls from what they think are their loved ones saying they're in trouble, send money, and it is working. The FTC has been releasing warnings, telling people phone calls now. It's not just the texts and the emails. So that is on the rise. We are absolutely seeing the rise of deepfakes and generative AI and disinformation. Just in the last two weeks, every single day, I've gotten an email from a reporter with an audio clip purportedly of Joe Biden saying something inappropriate on a hot mic. Um, I've seen one of uh, Bill Gates. Today, I saw one where it was a fake image of um, Putin kneeling before President Xi. Every single day now, And why is that? There's actually a couple of reasons. One is the technology really has gotten very good, but also is you need no skill to do this. Just go to Midjourney, go to Dolly, go to Stable Diffusion, go to Eleven Labs, go to any number of online portals, type something in, and it will create a very realistic piece of content, and then carpet bomb the internet with it. And so I think there has been an inflection point. And I I think that in 2024, here in the US, in the national elections, this is going to be a real problem. And I think it's going to be a problem for two reasons. One is people are going to create fake content and it is going to have an impact. But also when a candidate really does say something inappropriate, who's going to believe it? Go back to 2015 when Trump was caught on the Access Hollywood tape, what he said about women. He has plausible deniability. Nobody will believe that that audio released today. Nobody will believe that audio is true. OpenAI has invested quite a lot, uh, they say, into trust and safety. Um, they have done a substantial amount of uh, red teaming, at least yeah. per the uh, quote unquote technical report that they released yeah. around GPT-4. Uh, what do you make of these approaches to trust and safety by OpenAI or by these other firms, uh, yeah. by Microsoft, by Google, by Stability AI? Yeah. Uh, so two things on this. One is 
I think OpenAI is doing a reasonably good job. I don't think it's great, but I think it's a reasonably good job. But the problem here is that we're only as good as the lowest common denominator. So, for example, when OpenAI released Dolly, the image synthesis network, um, they, you know, they put some pretty good guardrails on it. You couldn't create images of Joe Biden and recognizable people. You couldn't create sexually explicit material. They had put some pretty good guardrails on it, and they were adapting that policy as they saw people abusing it. But Stability AI comes along, creates stable diffusion, open sources it, and says, do whatever you want. Non-consensual imagery, Joe Biden, we don't care. And so the problem is all of this technology is more or less out in the ether. The large language models, the networks for doing image synthesis and deep fakes, a lot of them are just open sourced on, on GitHub. And so, sure, I'm great. I, I'm, I'm happy to see them at least thinking and talking about it. Um, but the reality is, as long as there's somebody out there not willing to put those guardrails, that is going to be our weakest link. Uh, OpenAI also recently released these voluntary principles. Fine. But you and I both know that voluntary principles don't work in an industry. Um, no industry, when there are potentially billions at stake, are going to voluntarily slow down, reduce their profits, do something that is maybe making them anti-competitive with other people who are not going to be part of the voluntary principle. So I think we very much need our regulators to start thinking about these problems, think about how to create a, 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 a healthy ecosystem for innovation but also start thinking about how to mitigate some of the harms. And that can't come from inside the industry. It has to come from outside the industry. Of course, the threat of litigation liability uh, would be an important uh, countermeasure or adversarial force, yeah. uh, potentially on the companies to try to do their best. Regulation, uh, you know, you are in favor of it. Uh, doesn't look like Congress may act very soon. At least that's not my assessment. Yeah. I, I don't know. How worried are you in the <laughs> scheme of things that we're not going to get this right in the near term? I think it's more likely than not we will not get it right. Um, we have a national election coming up. Things tend to get pretty crippled. Um, we have the, the freak show that is going to be a potential Trump indictment this week. Um, it's going to be very hard to get traction here. Um, we're dealing with a, you know still instabilities in the financial sector. So I am concerned. And by the way, on top of all that, hardly anybody in Congress really understands this technology in any real way. So they're all working in the dark. A little bit of glimmer of good news. Uh, the Europeans have been thinking very carefully about AI regulation, both on the predictive side and the generative side. So maybe there's a glimmer of hope coming out of, of Brussels and the UK and Australians have also been very thoughtful on these issues. Um, I think we are crippled here in this country. And I think that there is a lot of money being poured into generative AI and AI in general. I think that there are very powerful lobbying efforts that will absolutely stifle any innovation by saying, well, if you regulate, we will lose anti we will be anti-competitive with China. Um, I think that we are going to repeat the same mistakes we did of the first 20 years of the internet. So think about all the mess that is social media today, throw AI on top of that, and I think we're going to end up in a very messy landscape. Now, there is one glimmer of hope here, <laughs> which is I do think, and you mentioned it, uh, Justin, so let me repeat it, is that one body of law that is actually fairly well established is copyright law. And it is the one place where we actually can get something done. So I think it might be interesting to see, and Getty, as a matter of fact, has filed a lawsuit against Stability AI for scraping their images illegal and using them to train their network. I think this may be a place where the original copyright holders may be able to hold uh, the feet to the fire of these big companies that are leveraging all of their content. And maybe that can create a little bit of regulatory pressure. Uh, but I don't think we're ready 
for what is happening, and it is happening very, very fast. I can't help but ask you to cast your mind forward a bit. You know, everyone's wowed by GPT-4. They're wowed by Sydney. They're wowed by all of these uh, uh, new contraptions. But, you know, two, three, four, five years from now, uh, bigger models, more compute. um, Who knows? Uh, People will be spending billions to train models and burning off a good bit of uh, carbon as they do it. (laughs) What are the mechanisms that we can put in place perhaps to prevent these things from getting beyond our ability to, to govern them or to understand them? Good. I'm glad you asked me that. So I have two thoughts on this. One is I think, first of all, the burden should be on those generating the content, not on us, the consumer, or even on the social media companies, for that matter, the distributors, the effective distributors. So I think if you are in the business of cloning people's voices and creating videos of people saying things they didn't say, you own that, both ethically and I think it should also be legally. So what can they do? Well, here's a couple of ideas. They can watermark every single piece of content that they create, text, audio, image, video. They can insert Uh, robust, multiple watermarks that make it easier to detect downstream. Not guaranteed. It's not a silver bullet. There are ways of attacking this. We know this, but create some, some friction in the system, create some speed bumps that make it easier to detect. They can also, particularly if you're generating this content server side, is fingerprint every single piece of content and make sure that you can't create it anonymously. So make sure you have an account and you have an email and maybe you have a phone number and and we can associate who did what with what. So there's some accountability. They can do this. We have the technology to fingerprint and watermark every single piece of synthetic content created. Now, on the flip side, we can also start thinking about how do we trust real content? So there's an effort I'm involved in. It is a not-for-profit multi-stakeholder effort called the C2PA. Coalition for Content Provenance and Authentication. It is being led by Microsoft and Adobe and Sony's in there and the BBC is in there and lots and lots of companies who are thinking about, in fact, we're not thinking about it, we've done it. We've written a specification that would allow people who record something, a politician, police violence, human rights violations, whatever it is, to authenticate where it was photographed or recorded, when, And then what are the pixels that were recorded? You put all of that cryptographically signed onto an immutable ledger, a centralized ledger. And then downstream, when the politician says, I didn't say that, you can go to that ledger and say, well, wait a minute. (laughs) I have a cryptographically signed piece of data that says you did say that. Um, So I really like that tackling the problem from the other side, authenticating the real stuff so the liar's dividend doesn't work. And then forcing those on the synthesis side to watermark and fingerprint and keep track of the content that they are creating. So we won't catch all the mice, but uh, perhaps the cats can at least, you know, have some advantage. That's exactly right. And think about this like every cyber attack, spam. We haven't solved the problem, but we've mostly contained it. Even viruses and malware are reasonably contained, right? All of these efforts over decades have made this a more or less manageable problem, right? It's a problem that we can sort of live with. Still threats. We have to adapt to it. We have to keep thinking about these problems, keep adapting. But you can't make it 100%. But right now it's at 5%. We got to get it up into the 90s. And I think there are mechanisms to do that, both legally, regulatory, and technically. Well, in the cat and mouse game, always nice to talk to one of the cooler cats. Uh, Thank you, Ani, very much. Great to talk to you, Justin. Thanks for that. That's it for this episode. Hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press 
or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.